We're in Ephesians chapter 2, but still in our series, Room to Grow. Uh, and uh, the, the most obvious way we were trying to make room to grow was uh, prior to this fall, we only had two services, and there was a good bit of crowding during this service in particular. We're a good crowd here right now, but imagine, you know, 70 more people in this room. You know, it was a little uncomfortable. Uh, and so we went to three services. We were trying to make room to grow, room to grow for our own people, but also to have space for people who want to come to Green Tree, who, have, who aren't coming yet, make room for them. That's, that was the most obvious one. But we're also, have, we also have a broader vision of room to grow, making bandwidth in our life uh, to grow spiritually, to grow in our discipleship, make space where we can take advantage of discipleship opportunities or expanding Sunday schools, expanding some training for small groups, getting involved with small groups, uh, making room to grow in our hearts for, for giving, to, to be generous, not just with our treasure, but, but with our time and our talent as well, that, that the Lord might use that to build his kingdom. But, all, but the last thing I want to mention here, and this is really our focus this morning, is making room to grow for people, for all kinds of people, for all people. You know, the sweetness of the gospel is that the Lord reached out to us who were far from him, distant from him, and he brought us near. And as he brings us near, guess what? We get closer to one another, at least we're supposed to. We come into proximity with other people God is drawing to himself. And the idea is, and the hope is, that there's a sweet unity that we share in the gospel, in unity in Jesus Christ. But if we are going to share in a unity, we need to make room for each other and make room for the differences because we're different. Uh, Unity is this great idea until we start realizing that being being, uh, unified means we need to get along with people who don't think like us, who see things differently than I do. Sometimes there are really important things. Education, theology, politics, worship, even sports. You know, I don't know if you noticed this, but in, in that harvest party, there was a Cubs fan. <laughs> Did you all see that? I, I saw it. We're different. We have issues. And sometimes those issues are really big. There are issues of racial harmony, social injustice, social unrest that rage today, not just simply in our country, but in our city, and not just our city, our town. Not far away, next door. I'm relieved to know that this is not a new thing for the church, though. It's not new. For God, it's not new for his people. As Paul reached out, the Apostle Paul, the gospel didn't reach, simply reach people that were different, different kinds of people. Uh, it drew them together. The gospel had to overcome division, the divisions of culture and race. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, and the, and the Jews sometimes referred deridingly to the Gentiles as the uncircumcision, a very graphic way of talking about uh, their uncouth ways as the Jews saw it. And Paul wants them to know something about those divisions. He wants to address those divisions. He has something to say about it, and he has something to say to us as well. The key question is, are we ready to hear it? Good for you. He said he's ready. 
Are we ready to hear it? Because it is going to make us feel all, every last one of us in this room, uncomfortable. And to be quite frank, probably I'm going to be the most uncomfortable of all. Because I have to be honest about how I'm feeling about things. But honest about what God has to say about me. With that in mind, let's look to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we ask that your Spirit would be at work among us as, as he has already been at work in our, in our singing, in our praise, in our, in our prayers. We ask now as we look at your word that you would be at work instilling in us, impressing upon us the implications of the gospel, that peace with you means we should be at peace with each other. Lord, work that in us. We prayed for our good and your glory. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to attend a training conference. I was in college ministry in the Northeast. And uh, this, this training conference was a, uh, a time of looking at uh, multi-ethnic ministry on the college campus. And the purpose of it was how, figuring out how do we reach a more diverse population with our campus ministry. Now, I, I went to this 25 years ago, but I got to tell you, uh, I was not very excited about going to this conference because I thought, even then, I'm going I'm to come, I'm going to hear this politically correct message, I'm going to be criticized because I'm white and middle class, and I have to tell you that I was, I was not disappointed. Uh, it was a hard conference uh, to, to be at. We, we played these role-playing games, highlighting economic disparities, the imbalance of power structures, how certain groups get favored over others, uh, sometimes by economics, sometimes by, by race. But what made the deepest impression on me was something that I found both deeply offensive and deeply challenging. Uh, there was a leader of diversity ministry 
uh, presented a video, and it was a video of the Reverend Calvin Butts. Reverend Butts is the pastor, even then, he was the pastor of Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, New York City. And he was preaching on justice in American society, calling for social justice for the black community. And going beyond that, he called on his congregation, says, listen, if we, if we don't get justice, he wanted his congregation to go into the streets. And what I recall him saying was, I want you to go into the streets and cause chaos. And uh, uh, I became very uncomfortable. Um, it seemed like he was advocating behavior that I would consider very intimidating. And the presenter of the video, who's also an African-American leader, uh, made comment that at times, he didn't even qualify at times, he just said, I, I, I feel more at ease with an unbelieving African-American than I do with a believing white. And I confess, you know, when he said that, I, I was... I was perplexed. I was confused. And maybe even a little irritated and resentful. But, but I started, my wheels started turning on this. And I'm like, why, why does he feel this way? What, what about his circumstance makes him feel this way? What leads a person who shares my core beliefs, my values, my convictions on eternal destinies and how it is that we're saved, what leads him to feel so distanced from me because of race or culture? And that's the question that Paul is going head, head at. This distance. It's a different cultural situation as Jews and Gentiles, but it's the same kind of distance that Paul's addressing in Ephesians, this racial, cultural resentment. And again, he comes at it head on. We might ask ourselves, why does he do that? I mean, what does the gospel, which is dealing with sin and death and God's mercy, what does that have to say about race? Well, the gospel has everything to do with anything that would challenge the peace that God establishes between us and him and each other. And race, racial tensions challenge the peace of Christ. And so Paul goes right at it. The idea here is simply this, that to live out the gospel means we've got to live out the gospel spirit of reconciliation with people no matter their race, no matter their culture, who also have Christ as their Savior. Now, there are implications more broadly than that, but what Paul is talking about is the unity we have in Christ. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. He says, believing the gospel means we must be at peace with each other despite our racial and cultural tensions. And that way I'm going to talk about it in terms of the gospel is a very familiar Paradigm. How do we respond to the gospel? We repent and we believe. And we need to begin with repenting. Repenting of our prejudicial resentments. And maybe even before repenting, we need to, to recognize that there is a problem that we need to repent of. It's real. 
It's real in our day. It was real in Paul's day. He hints at it when he's talking about the uncircumcision, this uh, uh, basically this, this racial slur against the Gentiles. The, the Jews, the Christian Jews were, were using it, you, you know, the uncircumcision. Um, and it hints at this huge divide. And the divide has lots of different layers. It can be political, racial, cultural. We're going to talk about race and culture this morning. Don't, don't quite have time for the politics of it. I'm not, I'm not too sad about that. But uh, let's talk about the first layer. Race, skin color, ancestry. From whom do we descend? The Jews descended from Abraham, and they bore the mark of circumcision because of it. The Gentile Christians didn't descend from Abraham. They didn't bear the mark. And the question became, well, does that make them second-class citizens? Because, you know, the gospel comes from the Jews, and, you know, it was the promise to Abraham that Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of the, of the promise to Abraham. So, so if you're not circumcised, are you second-class? And the Gentile Christians in Ephesus, the, the, the ones in Galatia responded differently. They, 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 they were like, well, maybe we should be circumcised. Not the Ephesians. They're like, we're, we're take offense at this. This is not good. And there's some indication in the way he's writing and the way he's addressing that, that they responded in a very prideful way as the Jews were sort of responding to the Gentiles. They took offense at the term and they say, you know what? We don't need your mark. This badge, this badge of honor you have, we don't need those stinking badges. <laughs> they took pride in not being Jewish. And of course, that's always helpful, right? You know, when someone responds this way and you, you react the other way, it makes everything great. And Paul in response says, whoa, 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 slow down. Slow down. We're missing the point here. Heritage is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't make anyone better or less than anyone else. Why? Because we were all alienated from God, and we were all brought near by his grace and by his grace alone. That's the message, verses 12 and 13. And if our Father wants peace with us, he wants peace among us. So we need to repent of our resentments. Well, that's easy, isn't it? It's hard. It's a lot of pain. And when we hold on to resentment, typically it results in new hurts and it deepens the pain. It has this awful cycling down on itself. How do we stop it? How do we stop being resentful? We replace our motivation of resentment with something else. How about empathy and affection? Undoubtedly in this room, uh, there are gonna be different views on the Stockley verdict. It's not that all African-Americans view it one way and all whites view it another, but the question remains, how do people who see things so differently, one event so differently, Come together. I want to emphasize something to you. I don't need to agree with someone to acknowledge their pain. I don't need to see things exactly the way someone else does to see their hurt, to sincerely hope and even work for better relationship. 
I don't need to think exactly like someone else to move towards him or her relationally. Because if that were true, my marriage would have crumbled years ago. <laughs> Is it scary to move towards someone who thinks differently than you? The moment, there's going to be a moment where you're going to be exposed to thinking differently about it, and there's going to be tension. Will we express ourselves poorly? Will we be misunderstood? Will I be called a racist at some point? Probably. You know, every day I read something on the internet. I see something in the news. I see something in my Flipboard feed. Anybody have use Flipboard? Uh, so it's an aggregator kind of a thing. I have a little hashtag. It's called race, race and ethnicity. And every time I come to that section and I see something on race and ethnicity, I'm like, oh, my gosh. This, whatever, whatever the headline is, it's going to punch me in the face. I feel like every day, at least it feels this way to me, I read something that's telling me implicitly because I am white and middle class, I am a white supremacist. And to be honest, I resent it. But my resentment is no cover for me not living in the spirit of the gospel that saved me from death and to that picture of heaven in Revelation chapter 7. Where every tribe and every nation and every tongue is worshiping the same Lord. I have to repent of my resentments and move towards my brothers and sisters. I must. There's this layer of race. There's also the layer of culture, though. Jews had a culture that bound them together. Uh, some of it was mandated by God. Some of it was just things they, you know, added on to uh, their traditions. And um, culture is about identity. You know, who I am, language, values, tradition. Uh, and if we were to let go of those things, we, we start asking the question, who am I? If I let go of my culture, some of us have a better sense of our culture than others, but we all have it. And this is a question that's really felt powerfully by immigrant populations here in the United States. And, and, and they, they, they answer it differently. Uh, some hold on to uh, their culture, they hold on to it tightly, they proclaim their heritage proudly. Some, like my family, who immigrated from Hungary, at least on my father's side, uh, they came to America, then they threw off the past. You know, they threw off the language, they threw off a lot of their ways uh, um, because they wanted to be Americans. Now, I put it that way, some of you who are from immigrant backgrounds will be like, why did he put it that way? I can still hold on to my language and be an American. I put it that way just to, to point out the tensions there are on this issue of assimilation. Now the church, we don't need to take sides as a church as to how people should assimilate or not assimilate. That, that's not what I want to talk about this morning. But I will say this, that moving towards other people in the spirit of the gospel means making room for how they might be different culturally. And that means for the sake of affection, feeling uncomfortable at least sometimes. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example of what I mean that's pretty removed from all this so that we can have a 
nice intellectual exercise without too much emotion attached to it. What is this? It's, it's a robe. Does anybody know the technical name of this? Some, some, some Reformed theologians might know it. This is, a, this is a Genevan gown. This is a Genevan gown. We don't wear these here at Green Tree, do we? No, we don't. Why not? Anybody know? It's too... More true than you know. Why don't we wear these? So, so some people say, look, you know, we, it it's puts a separation between the pastor and the people. And very much our culture here at Green Tree is to be relational, to connect. And so the pastors typically wear things that you would wear to emphasize that connection, the nearness of leaders to you, maybe even the nearness of God to you, okay? Um, that's what's being expressed there. So if I put this robe on, see, this is exactly why I did that, this. Because the second I put it on, you felt different. It felt different all of a sudden. Okay, I might get this right here. Okay, how does this make you feel? How are you feeling? I feel a lot hotter personally, but. It's communicating something to you. You're feeling differently about it. It's not our culture. Maybe some of you are like, oh, I I love robes. I'm so glad he has it on. (laughs) But a lot of you are like, "I I hope he takes it off soon because I'm feeling squirmy. What is he trying to communicate? Are we moving to robes? No. No. Tom Ricks would never allow that. (laughs) But I wore it. I didn't just talk about it. I wore it because it feels different. It feels different to you uh, as as I'm up here. Now, the Genevan gown was worn by John Calvin and uh, many reformers as a cultural expression of scholarship, of trustworthiness, of authority. But perhaps that's not what it communicates to you. Perhaps it communicates separateness, elitism, smug superiority, stuffiness. So is it uh, wrong to wear the robe? No. No, it is not. The key is to recognize what this robe is as opposed to what it is not. This robe is a culture. And as an expression of culture, it is neither a threat to me, nor to our church, nor to the gospel. And there are times when we come in contact with people who are different from us culturally, we feel uncomfortable. But it's not a threat. And for the sake of affection, we endure the discomfort. Because we want to love people. And we want to foster the peace that God has already established between us. Again, you might say, well, it makes me feel uncomfortable, so I don't, I don't like it. Well, if we're going to love people well, we're going to feel uncomfortable from time to time. And we also need to remember, if we're in the majority culture, feeling uncomfortable sometimes is nothing 
compared to those who are in the minority culture in our midst who feel uncomfortable most of the time. Paul is telling the Jews and the Gentile Christians that they need to live life together. And to do that well, that means being uncomfortable sometimes. You don't need to let go of your cultural identity, but you do need to make room for the differences. So, how do we make room? How do we make room in a way that's faithful to the gospel, that saved us? That's a good question. Now, there are many possible answers. I know that um, some of those answers might concern us. I don't know where all of them will take us, but I know where it begins. It begins with believing the gospel. Repent, believe. Believe the gospel. So when I say believe the gospel, don't you find that helpful? Yes and no. Believe the gospel. You just, we're just talking about the thorniest social issue we can possibly talk about. And my pastor just gave me some trite Sunday school answer. Well, let's look at it more carefully. What does the gospel tell us? The gospel tells us that in Christ, we are one. We're not divided. We are united. Now, we may have questions about how much stock we should place in our ancestry, but in Christ, we all have a common heritage, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're sons and daughters of one Father with access through one Spirit, verse 18, and that identity transcends all other identities. We're the family of God, a dysfunctional family, but a family nonetheless. And when we recognize this fundamental truth, we can see the dysfunction for what it is, a sin that grieves our father. Just like it would grieve any parent to see their children squabbling and fighting with one another. We're made family, but more than that, we're made fellow citizens. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being a cornerstone. We're fellow citizens. We have the same rights in God's eyes. Whatever your background is, in this church, the church of Jesus Christ, this is the way it should be. We all have the same rights. We all should be sharing in the same dignity. We all should have a voice. That's what's being affirmed here. Fellow citizens built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, in a kingdom, there's a society. There's a, there's a way of doing things. There's cultural and political aspects of it. And while there might be, there might be uh, diverse neighborhoods, different ways of doing things in different places, There's a common allegiance. In any kingdom, what is the common allegiance? Say it like you mean it. To the king. Jesus is our king. And that citizenship, that identity in Christ, supersedes our identity as conservatives or progressives. Not Not that you need to stop being a conservative or a progressive. It's just superseded by our identity in Christ. A Yankee, a Southerner, black, white, Latino, Asian, a Websterite or a Kirkwoodite. 
You need to believe the gospel, young man. (laughs) We're all one in Christ. And we don't need to work towards it. It is a reality that we resist. It's true, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. So the question is, when will we start living like what happens to the churches in North St. Louis is happening to my family and to my people? Because they are. It happens when we start believing that our identity in Christ and the bonds of the Spirit are more precious to us than our political and cultural interests. Now, ultimately, our unity is found in our agreement in the root problem, that's sin, and in the one solution to that problem, Jesus Christ. The greatest relational gulf that we know of is not between racial groups, but between God and humanity. We were made to be family, but in sin, we alienated ourselves, we became strangers, and yet God, our great and merciful Lord, sacrificed himself to breach this wall of hostility and made peace. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, we might all be different shapes and sizes and textures, but we're all being fitted together into one temple in worship of one God. Verse 21, in him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're all being built into one temple. Now, there might be some questions that jump out at you, or implications of this that maybe make you feel nervous. What are you saying, Darrell? Are you saying that the multi-ethnic church model is the only right church model? Um, is that practical? How does, how does all this play out? Well, let me say a couple of things to uh, those questions which maybe you're asking. First, while heaven is certainly the great multi-ethnic, multi-racial worship service, No, I am not saying that the multi-ethnic model is the only right model. There are many loving and strategic reasons a church may make to reach reach the people in their communities. And just because a church is predominantly white or predominantly Latino or Asian or black doesn't mean something is necessarily wrong. You know, I have a sister. She's family. Um, We grew up in a common family, but we've gone our different ways. She married uh, into an Italian immigrant family, and she has a really Italian home, okay? And the culture of that house and the culture of my house are really different. But we're still family, and we get together sometimes, and, and you know, and we, we share in holidays, and uh, sometimes she comes to my place, and she does things my way, and sometimes I go to her place, and we do things her way. It seems like we do things her way more often than my way, but, you know... <laughs> And sometimes I learn something from her, and I keep doing it her way. But we still have our separate homes. We're still family. But if I live as if she didn't even exist, I was unconcerned about what was happening in her household, the illnesses of her children, the financial strains. Um, That would be a problem. 
You know, there's a church in Kirkwood that shares all of our fundamental beliefs. Presbyterian government, they baptize their babies, they, they're, they're Calvinists, uh, they share the same confession. I have to confess as a pastor, I, don't, I haven't talked to anybody in that church in two years. I don't even know what's going on over there. It's the Korean church on Manchester. That's a problem. We need to engage with our family here in Kirkwood in the St. Louis area. And as for the question of practicality, since when does God worry about what's possible and not possible? He's the God of the impossible. Of course, this vision of unity and relationship is an impractical one. And it serves as proof that when it happens, and it will happen, that God alone is responsible. Whenever, whatever shape it takes here, we want the outside world to look at us and say, God is at work there because only he could do that. Isn't that the testimony you want for your church? It's the testimony I want. We will make mistakes. We will offend. We will stumble, fall even. But let's seek to be faithful to this big gospel that breached this wall of hostility between God and us by doing the same, by breaching other walls of hostility, tearing down the divisions. You know, we're about to sing this song, The God of the City, and the chorus goes like this. Greater things have yet to come, and greater things are still to be done in this city. And as you sing those words, I want you to ask yourself the question, do you believe it? It's true. The Lord calls on you to live faithful to the gospel of this kind of promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had here this morning. We do pray you would impress upon us the power of the gospel to tear down, tear down all kinds of walls, the wall between you and us, the wall between cultures and races. Lord, work that among us, that it might stand as a testimony to your power and work in our midst, that we might be blessed by it and that you might be glorified by it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.